Thank you, Jason, and all the uh, worship leaders for your ministry to us. My name is Rick Hudson. Uh, my wife, Carol, and I uh, have been either in missions or mission service uh, for 38 years now. Uh, most of that time was spent in the city of Puebla, Mexico, where my wife and I were involved as church planters in three different churches in that city. In 2007, God relocated us to the Indianapolis area, and I became a missions mobilizer, coach, and trainer for Fellowship International Mission. And it's in that capacity that I typically visit or attend the uh, IFCA pastor, regional pastors uh, fellowship that's uh, here in the northern part of Indiana, uh, even here at the church on occasion. And so that's why I get connected with Pastor uh, Mike and other uh, pastors here in the north Indiana, Indiana area. So when he came up for vacation, I think it was he and Josh were down at my house. Josh, I think, was playing uh, one of the games. And we was talking about uh, his vacation of biking across Iowa, which does not sound fun to me at all. <laughs> but then uh, Juan mentioned that Mike and I started our vacation after this service, or at least I'm starting after this service. And to my wife, my idea of a vacation doesn't sound that great. We're going to the Oshkosh fly-in, and uh, we'll get to see several thousand airplanes. And my wife goes, whoopee. <laughs> Not thrilled for her either, so that's all right. I'm not going to say anything about Pastor Mike and biking if you'll grant me the uh, joy of just looking at airplanes for the next uh, week or so and working around them. It's uh, something I've just been able to do, and I enjoy it. Anyway, I'm, looking, I'm glad to, to be here with you this morning. And uh, we're actually reasonably cool, aren't we? Uh, considering we had air conditioning problems through the week. So the Lord was gracious uh, with that regard. Early in my ministry, I was talking with a man that I respect very much. In fact, uh, he continues to be a mentor in my life. But we were talking about a particular subject. And that subject was about how so many people seek the limelight. They, they want to talk about themselves. They want to portray that they're really important. Now, both of us were involved in ministry. Uh, my friend, my mentor, and continues to uh, serve in missions. And we readily admitted that we could both name pastors who would fall into that same type of description. Always seeking to be in the limelight, trying to be the center of attention. And some, unfortunately, trying to appear or make themselves appear more important than others around them. But that led me to ask my friend a question, because I knew my friend. He's a very self-effacing man. And to this day, though he's approaching the end of his kind of working or you know, ministry career, his life has been marked by humility and a, a, a role and an attitude of not seeking that limelight, not being the most important, not drawing attention to himself. And I asked him, even back then, I said, how is it that you're different? 
His answer was very honest, yet very humble. He wasn't bragging by any means, but he very clearly explained how he sees the role of a church leader. And what he said was that instead of being the person out front all the time, or the person who's you know, most visible, rather he saw himself as a light technician, a stagehand, so to speak. And to be more precise, he said, Rick, I see myself as that person who stands behind a spotlight at any kind of drama or presentation. And my job is to focus that light and direct that light onto the person who needs to be illuminated. If it's a group of people, you open that light up and it's a broader light. If it's a single person, you narrow the beam down so that it's focused on just that one person. He goes, that's the role, the most important role that I see for a pastor. Controlling that spotlight, being behind the light and shining it on others. And he encouraged me to do the same. And he said, and I remember the words, don't look for the spotlight, Rick, but be the person who makes the light shine on others. I learned a very valuable lesson from my friend Keegan that day. And in fact, this conversation became one of the key elements of my ministry philosophy. What does it look like to be a biblical leader? I think it looks very much like being a light technician. And so this morning, as we look at a person in the Bible that I have called my Bible hero, the person I want to be like, and that man is Barnabas. And as we look at his life through the course of this morning, I want you to come away with this thought. It is worth time and effort to help others be in the spotlight of God's glory. It's worth your time and your effort to help others be in the spotlight of God's glory. I think Barnabas and his life and things that he did that we find in the New Testament illustrates exactly how he accomplished that. And that's why I want to do a, a character study, if you would, of this man named Barnabas. Because God uses people who shapes us, people who polish us, people who refine us. And in the Bible, we find that Barnabas did just that. We're going to see that he discipled a relative, a nephew. He guided someone who today we consider the second most important person of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. This man strengthened the early church. He was a key player in the, in the early church of Acts. Barnabas, he was the man behind the spotlight. So how can we be like Barnabas? Well, let's start beginning with point one, see potential in others. Barnabas was a person who saw potential in other people. He was willing to help others realize the potential that God had for that person's life. In Acts chapter 9, we read that 
Barnabas uh, had a key role in the Apostle Paul's early life because he was willing to take a risk to help others. In Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, we read this. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he being Paul, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So let me unpack this verse and give you a little, uh, a little bit of background to this passage in case you don't recall it. But Paul had indeed, on the road to Damascus, who uh, was intent upon in, uh, putting in jail, arresting, perhaps even contributing to the death of Christians during Damascus. And of course, you know that he came to know the Lord on that trip. In the next years or two, he spent there in Damascus as he was discipled and, and built his faith in Christ. He began to contend with the other religious leaders there in Damascus, but the point reached where there was so much conflict that he literally had to flee one night. And so he escaped from Damascus in the middle of the night, came to Jerusalem, and he sought to connect with the apostles at the Jerusalem church. Now, think about what the apostles and the Jerusalem church had heard about Paul. They had not heard about his conversion. Maybe he dropped off the radar, but the last that he, they knew about Paul in Jerusalem was he was arresting believers, he was putting them in jail, and even affirming a death sentence on some of them. He was a, a, an opponent, an enemy of Jesus Christ. But now all of a sudden he shows up in Jerusalem, now he's wanting to meet the apostles. He wants to connect to the Jerusalem church. It's understandable that they had a lot of reservation about accepting Paul, or Saul as he was called at that time. With reason, I think they thought, yeah, this is just a ploy. He wants to get in. He wants to infiltrate the church and find out who the key leaders are so he can bring charges against us, so he can arrest them, put them in jail. So there was an easily understandable reticence to accept Saul into the church of Jerusalem. It could mean a death sentence, or at the least, being arrested. But one man took the risk. Barnabas decided to find out for himself if Paul's story, the new Paul, was legitimate or not. And so he went and met Paul. Obviously, he had a conversation with him. They talked. They conversed. And Barnabas came to the conclusion that, indeed, Paul had met the Lord and that he had moved from being an enemy of Jesus Christ to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And then it was Barnabas, based on his personal uh, information from Saul, who went to the leaders of the Jerusalem church, to the apostles, and basically staked his reputation and said, this man is genuine. The Lord has saved him. He is a follower of Jesus. 
But I want you to understand, Barnabas took a risk. A risk of jailing or being in, uh, put in jail, even perhaps being killed. But he took the risk. So let me ask you, are you willing to take risk to help others? Perhaps you know someone who is not with the in group. Are you willing to extend friendship to this person? Is there a neighbor with whom the other neighbors just don't get along with? Are you willing to take the risk to be kind to that neighbor, to show godly love to him or her? Secondly, we see that Barnabas became a mentor. If you look over a couple pages to Acts chapter 11, you will see that Barnabas was in Antioch. He was trying to find out what was going on at Antioch because they'd heard a lot about it in Jerusalem. We'll talk about this more in a few minutes. But look at verses 25 and 26 of Acts 11. After Barnabas had got to Antioch, he had evaluated the situation. He realized he was going to spend some time there. Then I want you to see what he did. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. This was seven year, several years after Jerusalem in that incident of Barnabas presenting Saul to the church leadership of Jerusalem. But Paul had fallen off the radar it sort of disappeared because he had gone back to his own home, the city of Tarsus. But as Barnabas started to minister in, the, in Antioch, he remembered Saul is up here in Tarsus, not too terribly far away. And so he went from Antioch up to Tarsus in southern Turkey. And he invited Paul to come and to serve and minister with him. Now realize, Paul was an educated man. That comes out throughout his epistles. He was highly educated. He received what would be considered an Ivy League education, especially in the religious circles of his day. But he hadn't connected with the church yet. He hadn't pastored. And Barnabas invited him in to be a part of the leadership at Antioch. And for a whole year, I believe Barnabas poured his life into Paul to help him, as educated as he was, to understand what does it mean to pastor, to lead, to shepherd a flock. I think Barnabas, for this time, was Paul's mentor. Are you helping someone along on their life path? Are you encouraging someone to keep on? Are you helping someone to grow in God's grace and the knowledge so that that person may become a mature believer who serves God faithfully? Are you mentoring? Are you guiding? Are you helping another person? The third way Barnabas saw potential in others was that he gave others second chances. If you jump forward a few chapters to Acts chapter 15, 
in verse 17. I just want to look at the first half of that verse, a well-known verse. But Acts 15, 37 says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. Again, let me unpack it a little bit. Paul had suggested to Barnabas that they do another churches that they had started on the first missionary journey in southern Turkey. So if you can imagine being Turkey today, here, this is the Middle East, okay? This is my little hand tool of how to remember the Middle East. So Antioch would be right here where my wrist is. Again, Greece is over here. And they had uh, started here in the south part of Turkey. They were back at Antioch, and Paul said, let's go revisit these churches. And the scripture says, Barnabas wanted to take with him John Mark. Now, we find out later that John Mark is his nephew. But what had happened in the first journey, Mark had left with them, had accompanied them across the island of Cyprus, which was located here in the Mediterranean. But when they sailed from Cyprus up to the southern coast of Turkey, Mark abandoned them. Now that was pretty significant because there was safety in numbers. They were about to travel through the mountainous region of southern Turkey, which was known to have highway robbers. So numbers was safe. But Mark also probably supplied just support. It wasn't easy to travel back in those days. And so he was probably just support personnel that they counted on to free them up, to free Barnabas and Saul or Paul up for ministry. So his departure wasn't just an inconvenience. It was a major problem. Now we come to the second journey, and Barnabas says, let's give Mark a chance. And Paul says, no, no way. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes. But what I want you to focus on is Barnabas was willing to take that risk again, to give someone else a second chance, to give others second chances. And that's what Barnabas did. Barnabas took John Mark on another trip. They sailed to the Isle of Cyprus while Paul and Silas, another believer, another disciple, returned to those churches that Barnabas and Paul started on the first trip. The important point to consider is that Barnabas was willing to give Mark a second chance. He was willing to let past failures stay in the past. Are you willing to give others second chances? Or maybe even thirds? Are you the kind of person that once someone does something that fails or doesn't come through, are you the kind of person that says, no, I'm writing them off? One and done. They blew it. It's over. But aren't you glad that God gives us second chances or even third chances? He forgives us countless times when we fail him. Is it reasonable to assume that we, as followers of Christ, could also give others second chances? Besides seeing potential in others, secondly, Barnabas, 
was a person whom others could trust. Barnabas was a person that other people trusted in. And this, was, this is seen in several ways throughout the New Testament. In the first place, Barnabas was trustworthy in changing circumstances. Again, go back to Acts chapter 11. And let me refresh your memory a little bit again. At the last half of this chapter, starting with verse 19, the Antioch church had been started by two men um, from... Uh, the men who came from Cyprus and Cyrene in verse 20. So these two men started the church of Antioch. Now, a significant change for missionaries, this is a key phrase here. But they decided not to just look at the Jews, but began speaking to the Greeks also. They were truly cross-cultural church planters. And God began to bless Antioch. People came to know the Lord. The church was growing to such a degree that the church of Jerusalem heard about what God was doing. Now, they wouldn't get news flashes. They didn't get emails, and they didn't get uh, Snapchats about what God was doing. They wasn't following them in Facebook. So they had to take somebody and say, hey, go check out the, Jews, uh, the church in Antioch. What's going on up there? Are they being true to scriptures? And so they had to choose someone that they could trust to evaluate the situation, perhaps correct any type of doctrinal error or whatever problem may present itself. They needed someone they could trust to uh, accurately evaluate and correct if necessary. Whom did they choose? Barnabas. So Barnabas went. After he arrived, he discovered that indeed the Lord was blessing the church in Antioch. People were coming to Christ. People were growing. And Barnabas' encouragement for the church was simply to remain faithful. He said in verse 23, he rejoiced and began to encourage them in, with all resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. What God was doing was just a, a wonderful thing. And Barnabas encouraged him to go, to go on for the Lord. Let me ask you this. Can people trust how you will respond in unknown situations? Can people trust you in uncertain times? If your boss asks you to check something out, can he be confident that you will act with integrity? Will you watch his back? Basically, the question is, are you a person of character? Secondly, Barnabas proved his trustworthiness with other people's possessions. Acts chapter 11 ends with this uh, note, kind of a footnote in the, the history of the early church. But he says in verse 29 and 30, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Agabus the prophet had predicted that there would be a famine, a time of scarcity in Jerusalem and for the Jerusalem believers. And the people of Antioch decided, we're going to send monetary help to the church to go through this difficult time that Agabus had predicted. Now, they didn't have wire transfers. 
They didn't have bank-to-bank, you know, transference of monies. They couldn't get online and send money. The only way you could really do it effectively was physically take up an offering, put that offering in the care of one or two individuals, and send them on their way, trusting God to protect them from highway robbery, which was common. But that's what they did. They chose Barnabas and Saul to take the offering to Jerusalem. We know that they succeeded in the task because in verse uh, 25 of Acts 12, we read the that sort of wraps this incident. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. He didn't steal the money. He didn't pocket it. He didn't say, oh, great, now I get to take a vacation. He took it to Jerusalem and delivered it to the apostles and the church so that they would have it in their time of need. Can you be trusted with other person's possessions? It happens in the workplace. It happens in churches. It is tragic that it happens as frequently as it does. But I'm not just talking about money either. There's other types of possessions that people entrust with you, such as a piece of family history, a sin that they're struggling with. When people trust you with that type of information, that type of possession, can you be trusted to keep it? To respect the privacy, to pray with them and to encourage them? Or do you look for somebody to share that piece of information with? Can you be trusted with someone else's possessions? Can you be trustworthy in dealing with problems? Jump over to Acts chapter 15. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that this is the famous Jerusalem Council. But just reading verses 1 and 2 of Acts 15 gives us enough of the background that we can talk about Barnabas' role in this major problem that faced the early church. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so that's what they did. This delegation from Antioch went to the church of Jerusalem, went to the apostles, and said, here's the problem. Do we have to keep the law or not to be followers of Jesus Christ? It was the first major decision, theological decision, doctrinal decision, the church faced in those few years following Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. But after a long discussion, a solution was decided upon. A letter was written to be read among all the churches stating what the apostles and the church had decided Salvation was based on faith alone. Barnabas and Paul and the delegation returned from Jerusalem and carried this letter back to Antioch to give the answer. And in verse 30 of Acts 15, we read this. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered 
the letter. You know, today, especially in the news, even this morning, immigration and the issues relating to border activities and things are going on with incarceration and all that is a big problem. And I think, at least on my behalf, to me the most frustrating part is that Congress is not part of the solution, the part of the problem. So here's the question. When you're dealing with problems, are you a person who is part of the solution or are you part of the problem? Can people trust that if you're brought into a situation where conflict is going on, that your presence will contribute toward a solution? Or do you have the reputation of fanning flames? of saying incendiary comments or making incendiary comments. But you see, Barnabas was a man that the church knew was a solution seeker. They could count on him to be part of the solution. They trusted him to deal with problems in a godly way. Thirdly, What we see from Barnabas is that we need to admit it when we make mistakes and we need to learn from others. I want you to know Barnabas, as much as I admire him, Barnabas was not perfect. And at least two occasions, we know that Barnabas had a failure. And I'm going to be brief with this point and move through it. But I want to point out two times. Uh, Again, when... At some point, Paul, or Peter, was up in Antioch. And when he was there, he lived like a Gentile. I remember in Acts 10, God had challenged him to put, a, put a, uh, aside his Jewishness, his, his Jewish traditions, and accept Gentile ways. So now Peter is in Antioch, and he's living like a Gentile. He's eating things that everybody else was eating. He wasn't maintaining his Jewishness until some people from Jerusalem came to Antioch. And when these, these Jewish men, this Jewish delegation arrived from Jerusalem at Antioch, what did Peter do? He began acting like a Jew. He began following Jewish customs. He wouldn't eat with uh, Gentiles. But here's the worst part of it. In Galatians 2.13, Paul is addressing the issue and how Peter began to behave um, hypocritically. In verse 13 we read, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Peter's prejudice resulted in even Barnabas piggybacking on that prejudice and putting aside Gentile ways to the point that the Apostle Paul had to call Barnabas and Peter out in public. 
Now, Peter, we know who he was, but I also want you to point out, and just let me mention here, I think Barnabas was the senior pastor at this point. I'll tell you why in just a moment. So this would be like Pastor Mike all of a sudden saying, you know what, I'm a Jewish, I'm not going to eat pork, I'm not going to eat all this, and I'm, we're, we're going to now conduct this church in the way of a synagogue more than a, a Christian church. That's tantamount to what was going on probably in, in Jerusalem, uh, in uh, Antioch, according to Galatians chapter 2. It was a significant failure. So Peter committed this error. He influenced Barnabas and others to commit this error. But Paul stood up to Peter and to the others and challenged him and said, you're being discriminatory. You're being prejudiced. As believers, we are not to discriminate. We are to treat everyone else as we are, sinners loved by God. James, in at least two occasions in his epistles, says, do not show partiality to anyone. And that can be applied across ethnical lines as well. We are not to discriminate. Do you discriminate against others? Do you show partiality based upon where a person is from? What language he or she speaks? And let me go to add this, whether or not they have a visa to be here or not. As believers, our first question should be to people who are different than ourselves, do you know my Jesus? Do you know my Jesus? Secondly, and another mistake we learn, not to be stubborn. I have already talked about Barnabas and Paul's dissension in Acts chapter, uh, what is it, 15, after the, uh, the council. I told you how Barnabas wanted to choose Mark and go with him on the second journey, and Paul said no. Verse 39 makes the comment, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Now, we know the story. We say, well, but God brought a blessing out of that. Instead of having one mission team, now we have two. Yes, God can take tragic situations and bring them about a change for his honor and glory. But let me ask you this question. Was God honored when two men dug their heels in, two strong leading church leaders dug in their heels and out of just personal preference, came to a point where they had to split and go separate ways. Do you think God was honored by that? I don't. Yes, God brought it about eventually. And we know that Paul eventually asked for Mark's presence in his last days. But I'm talking about at that point, do you think God was honored by the stubbornness of Barnabas and Paul? I don't think so. So here's my question. Are you willing to admit it when you're being stubborn for reasons other than biblical truth? I have no problem if you want to be stubborn about doctrine, about something the Bible says. Be as stubborn as you can be. But if it's personal preference, or if it's just because you think it ought to be done this way, are you stubborn for those reasons? All right, real quickly, let me just... Take the spotlight from a wide angle and bring it down. 
and let's talk for a few minutes about how to be a person who shines a spotlight on others. What does it take? First, be a person that encourages. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. This is when we're introduced to this personality, Barnabas. And look at the comment that Paul wrote about Barnabas when he first comes on the scene. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Jewish people often gave names that had a significant meaning to this day when you know, somebody is born. They'll put a name on it and says, which means. You know, we, we read those kinds of doc, uh, diplomas. We do that at our baby dedications. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was known to be an encourager. He uplifted people. He told people, come on, you can do it. We can do this together. Continue on. Let's go. That's what Barnabas did. He encouraged others. Secondly, be generous with what you have. In that same verse, we read what Barnabas did. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He made a significant contribution to the Jerusalem church. He was giving money to God and to the church. He was generous. He wasn't holding on to his earthly possessions. Let's be generous. But also, let's be someone who leads. Even as an encourager, even as somebody who's behind the spotlight, you can lead people. Everybody leads someone. How do we know that Barnabas led? Going to Acts chapter 13, and I referenced it just briefly a few moments ago. Let's read verse 1 of Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manning, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. I think these five men were listed in a significant order. I think Barnabas became what we would call senior pastor. He was number one. And then you see the other four listed. He was a key leader, if not the principal leader at least, of the church at Antioch. But there's another thing that we gather from this verse. Besides being probably the leader of this church, uh, congregation. He was also someone who did what was right. Notice in verse 1, it says there are two kinds of people in the church. There were prophets and teachers. Now, in the Greek, there are some markers, some grammatical markers that separate these two in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 1. And what we see is that the first three, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius of Cyrene, was one group. Go ahead, Brian, and hit one more advance, please. They were the prophets. The second group was um, Manian and Saul. They were the teachers. Now let me talk about prophets for just a minute. Prophets are black and white people. There's no gray areas for prophets. In the words of the, old, the umpire adage, I call them like I see them. That's how a prophet is. They're very direct. They're usually confrontational. 
It's not easy to take person who's more of a prophetic bent because they are known to get up in your face and tell you what's wrong and what you need to do to get right. It's hard to take a lot of dosage of prophets, but we need prophets in our lives. We need people who aren't afraid to say, here's the line, tow it, follow it. I'm a diplomat. I, I, just, I want people to get along. Let's just all get along. It's hard for me to tell somebody, do this because it's the right thing to do. But yet, every person needs to do this. At least in a gracious and loving way. But this is what the kind of person that Barnabas was. He was a person you could count on to do what was right. And finally, be someone who lets others take the spotlight. Turn a few pages over, or just a page over, to Acts chapter 14 and verse 12. Let me just tell you, we're back in the first missionary journey. Barnabas and Paul had arrived at a city called Lystra. I'm not going to take the time to tell all the history, but the Lystrians were so enthralled with Barnabas and Paul, they thought that the Greek gods, two Greek gods, had come down out of the heavens to visit them. And they said they called Barnabas Zeus, the primary Greek god, and Paul Hermes, a son of Zeus, because he was a chief speaker. He was the messenger. You ever see the god with uh, sandals and has the wings on his feet? That was, those are images of Hermes, a, a Roman name is Mercury. Here's what the Lystrians were thinking. Zeus is the god who's the big God, the behind-the-scenes God who manipulates and controls in Greek mythology all other gods and even humans. And before him was his sons, one of them being Hermes or Mercury, the messenger. And they called Paul the messenger because he was the speaker. He was the one giving the message. It's at this point in the book of Acts that we stop talking about Barnabas and Paul, and from here to the conclusion, we talk about Paul and Barnabas. It happened at Lystria, the transition where Barnabas took the back seat and he allowed Paul to take the driver's seat. Barnabas stepped behind the spotlight, and for the rest of the time that he ministered with Paul, he was behind the scene. He was the force, if you were, behind the scene. He let Paul take the spotlight. Let me talk about a friend of mine. My oldest son, Jeremy, is a campus pastor in Springfield, Ohio. A couple years ago, when he was youth pastor, a mother of one of his teenagers came up to Jeremy and said, I hope you can understand how much of an influence you've had or you've made on my son. And she paid my son a, a tremendous compliment. And Jeremy responded to this lady. He goes, I appreciate what you said, and I think I understand what you're saying. He didn't tell her, but we talked about it later. Jeremy had a high school teacher and coach, his basketball and soccer coach, who poured into Jeremy and the other athletes and students' lives. 
And this man encouraged Jeremy and my other son. He also reprimanded Jeremy when he needed to be reprimanded. But he told Jeremy, you can do more. You can be your best. Serve for God. Serve God with all your heart. And he was constantly challenging Jeremy to go forward, to be more for God's glory. After the conversation with his mother, Jeremy decided that it was time to write this teacher and thank him. And so he wrote and shared the letter with me. And what Jeremy said, he thanked this man named Pete Gross. Pete now lives in Warsaw, Indiana. He and his wife, uh, Beth, were missionaries in Puebla for many years. But he thanked him for his advice. He thanked Pete for the time that he spent with Jeremy. He thanked Pete for the time when he got on his case and reprimanded him for not being his best. You know, as parents, we were thankful for people like Pete and others in the lives of our kids because we realized God used Pete in a key way in the formation and growth of Jeremy. And today, as I said, he's a pastor, staff pastor in Springfield, Ohio, which Pete, by the way, told him early on, you're going to be a pastor one day. And Jeremy denied it right up until the time he answered the God's call. What am I saying? You can be a person like Pete Gross. In the life of someone else, you can be that person who's encouraging and pushes him. You can be like Barnabas. You can be that person who takes the time and effort to show God's glory, to shine God's glory on the life of someone else. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Barnabases in my life. My friend Keegan, who challenged me early in my ministry to get behind the spotlight and stay there. But others, Lord, and I'm sure many here could think about people who encouraged them, who helped them along in the life path. But Father, we want to be that same type of person. We want to encourage others. Perhaps that encouragement is to come to Christ, to experience the salvation, your salvation, to experience forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with you. But Lord, it could be encouragement in different fashions and different ways. May we exhibit a Christ-likeness, Lord, as your followers and not only be like Barnabas, but be more like you each day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.